Hey everybody, I just want to take a moment to talk about a new thing I'm doing. Over the years, many of you have reached out to me telling me how much you love the podcast, but also wish there were more personalized takeaways and more in-depth interactions with our guests to hear what they think about comedy. This is why I'm now launching my new digital academy, Blueprint for Success. With exclusive interviews and comedy philosophies of stars and industry veterans, personalized versions of the Industry Standard podcast, commercial-free, and one-on-one coaching time with me. Blueprint for Success will give you the powerful tools that will take you up the elevator beyond the competition and reach the highest possible levels to achieve your dreams. Whether it be stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, hosting, radio podcasting, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or an agent. Now I'm here to help, personally. We'll go on an express train of comedy and entertainment like nobody else has before. You can find out more about Blueprint for Success and the comedy business on my website at barrycats.com. Together, we'll take your career where you want it to go. I remember I taught comedy. Um, f- f- the first day was always like, okay, what's effed up about your life? And and we would like, people would go, well, I've been divorced. Woohoo, you know, I can't lose weight. Yeah, it's like, and, and I remember one woman going like, um, I'm, no, I can't think of anything. And it's, come on, someone's rejected you. No, no, no one's ever rejected me. Um, my teenager loves me. Um, he hugs me every day. It's like, what? I mean, come on. I guess if I have any problem, it's like I can't seem to gain weight. Everything I eat goes right <laughs> to my breasts. I mean, she, it's like, get out of here. You can't be funny. Like, you cannot be funny. Hey, everybody. Welcome back to another episode of Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. Glad you're here. Thanks for coming. I really appreciate it. Hope you had a great holiday weekend. I know I did. I'm really excited about this episode this week with Judy Carter. You are going to get a lot out of this. This is somebody I've known of for a long, long time, and I'm so grateful that I had the chance to sit down with her at her home, and it was really, really extraordinary. If you need to reach me, you can do so at Barry Katz, at Instagram or Twitter, and be sure to follow me, and I will be glad to get back to you as soon as humanly possible. All right, and without further ado, let's get started, and I hope you enjoyed this as much as I did with Judy Carter. All right, here goes. Growing up with an alcoholic father, a disabled sister, and having a severe speech impediment and depression, she learned that she had the perfect childhood for launching a comedy career. At eight years old, she studied magic and became a young entrepreneur, doing magic shows for birthday parties. By 11 years old, she was her own marketing department, coming home from third grade to make sales calls. Going pro as a magician, she became the first woman to perform at the Magic Castle in Hollywood with her death-defying escape from her grandmother's girdle and sawing a man in half. She turned into a comedian on an engagement when the airlines lost her luggage and she had to go on and perform without her bag of tricks. 
which launched her into a comedy career where she went on to appear on over a hundred television shows, as well as opening for incredible acts, including one of the most respected geniuses of our generation, Prince. Coming off the road, she wrote a how-to book on comedy that was rejected by 59 agents only to be published eventually by Random House, which led to an appearance and an interview by Oprah Winfrey on her show. Since then, as an international corporate keynote speaker and speaking coach, she has become the cure for the common cubicle, speaking on the power of personal stories and humor to inspire others. Her humor message has been written about in the Wall Street Journal and several other respected publications. Additionally, she's done TED Talks and appeared regularly on NPR's All Things Considered. Her comedy workshops have been attended by Maz Gibrani, Hannah Gadsby, and Seth Rogen, just to name a few. She's also known for doing annual comedy workshops for Muslim leaders in Washington, D.C., teaching how to use humor when interviewed by the media. As an author, she wrote The Comedy Bible, published by Simon & Schuster, and The Message of You, Turn Your Life Story into a Money-Making Speaking Career. Coming this year, she launches her newest book, The New Comedy Bible, available in January of 2020. Ladies and gentlemen, please welcome a woman whose opening act in New Orleans was Ellen DeGeneres, was in a comedy club when Robin Williams made his first showcase appearance and dated and worked with Andy Kaufman. Please welcome my guest today. What an honor, Judy Carter. Thank you. Great intro. Best intro I've ever written. That's fantastic. I have so many things to ask you. Uh-oh. I'm going to bear all. You know what? You get to a certain point where you just go... Ah, oh, to hell with it. What do you want to know? I'm just going to bare my soul here. I love that. So, first thing I want to talk about is adversity. Mm -hmm. Okay, so what I love about your story and how it means a lot to me is that everybody says, you know, well, everybody starts off at zero, zero, and everybody has the same thing going and everybody has the same 24 hours a day but what they don't tell you is some people are born with one arm tied behind their back and that's how they start their life and i want you to tell our audience what you went through in the beginning of your life and how you overcame that kind of adversity and the second part to that question is was there a moment where you knew I've overcome these things. Wow, that is that is quite a question. I feel like I need to um, lie down on this couch. Um, well, I think every single person, every comic, and I, you know this, Barry, right? Every single comic, um, we we use comedy because we had to, and we would die. We would die if we couldn't look at the family and go, um, oh my God, this is funny. Like there's some part that says that this is funny. And um, I, I was, um, my family was, let's just look at this. Okay, my father is a raging alcoholic and- uh, Is or was? Was, um, uh, he died. Um, he was a, um, you know, alcoholic and, and a 
abusive and um so as many people know there's many different kinds of alcoholics there's the ones who they drink every day and for some amazing reason they seem to keep it all together then there's the ones that drink a little bit and you're like okay i hope he has this couple of drinks here because that's when he's his nicest and then there's a point where some where they go over a line and then they're fall down drunk and then there's the point where they're the raging drunk and he was a quiet he was he was a quiet drunk that would he was so Weird. He collected cactus. He had about 5,000 succulents in the backyard we had to water. And my sister was severely disabled. And he, like, would make her gadgets that was really cool that, you know, like chairs and have straps on them so she could sit with us because she had uh, severe spastic cerebral palsy. And then did your sister have now this is something because of my history and my oh, really? my, did you my, have a disabled well I spent my first part of my life working with disabled kids and adults in camps all across the country and so a lot of people don't realize this there's certain cerebral palsy where just the physical side is affected and you could appear like you have nothing going on and and you are at the lowest level intelligence and you could be the highest level of intelligence or there is a cerebral palsy where not only has the lack of oxygen in the womb affected your motor skills Mm. but it's affected your brain was your sister did she have all her brain power but just the the physical was gone or were both gone you know that is um the cruel joke of marcia's life was um that she was smart but when i saw there was an old movie called um my left foot and it was about a guy who could only move his daniel day lewis and i kind of looked at that and went what the f is he complaining about he's he could move that foot my sister was as severe as you could be she she couldn't uh, uh walk she couldn't talk she communicate with facial expressions so it would take like a half hour it's like what's the matter mark Marcia, what is it? What is it? Do you have to be? No, it's just good. And it's like, would go on and on. It's like, Marcia, um, and then you do 20 questions, and then you go, is your shoe too tight? Yes! You know what she- And you bring back chills because my most challenging disability that I ever worked with were severe cerebral palsy, who had all of their wits about them, but... They couldn't, they had a board with communication board with, where they with, with A, B, C, D, but they were so spastic, you uh, couldn't really see what was yeah. happening. And they, it would take a half hour to find out what was going on. And you'd have to keep saying, I'm sorry, I don't understand. And you can oh, imagine so. how frustrating it is, not just for, you think it's frustrating for the person who can talk. Imagine the person who's just trying to tell you that their shoe is too tight. And so it's horrible. And, um, and it it anyway my father was cruel to the point of police coming and my sister was institutionalized she was institutionalized and for 30 years she just said one word until finally i got her a home and she ended up because at this time in california they didn't have people who were so severely disabled in the community or community homes but i got her a home and so you know, when she turned about uh, 45, I, 
By the way, everybody listening, this is a typical life for someone who does comedy. I'm just saying um, that uh, she finally did get a home and a wonderful home with wonderful people, a six person home. And um, and uh, she had lived to about uh, 58. She was my way older sister. And, you know, I want to tell you, Barry, something that really inspired me. And and um, this really inspired me. At her funeral, you would think, here's someone who is a continent, can't uh, talk. I thought, oh, okay, there'll be a couple people there, right? A couple family members, a couple people. Why was a hundred people at my sister's funeral? Why would a hundred people come to that? Now, it was... I'm hoping for nine at my funeral. Yeah, right? I mean, why is somebody, you know, because a lot of us feel like, our lives, we don't make a difference. So how does somebody who's so severely dependent on other people, why would so many people come to this funeral? Well, one person after the next got up and said, I'm Marsha's physical therapist. And Marsha laughed at my jokes. Marsha gave my life purpose. Marsha gave my life meaning. Marsha made me feel needed. And that's when I actually was so inspired that I, um, I, I started a podcast called The Power of Purpose because what I realized from this is that we all don't, and we were kind of talking beforehand about, you know, why are we doing podcasts? Why are we doing all this stuff for free? And giving away? And, and, and from this um, moment, I realized that you do what's in front of you and you don't really realize what effect you have on other people and what your life is really about. My sister had not a clue how so many of people were affected by her because she was so vulnerable and dependent on others and that she gave other people their the meaning of their life. Do you understand what I'm, what I'm talking about here? And um, that really seeing that all of a sudden every everything made sense and my sister is gave me my purpose in life because i wanted you know from this very depressing family i would kind of sneak and get my father's dirty joke books and i'd read them to her and we would go to fancy restaurants like der wiener schnitzel and I wait till she had a hot dog in her mouth, and then I tell her a joke, you know, some Confucius say, wash face in morning, neck at night, just some stupid joke. And she would like go, and she would scream, the hot dog would projectile out, hit the wall, the restaurant would clear out. Marcia and I would laugh. And that's when I truly saw the beautiful effect of of laughter and 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 that's became very like when i'm five years old there you know that that i wanted to make my sister laugh and that became my purpose so so do you see how this works here's someone who is so severely disabled not famous nobody knows her but she had such a profound effect and i think that gives us all hope Hey everybody, I hope you're enjoying this episode as much as I am. If you made it this far and you haven't fallen asleep yet, then you must be the type of person who's serious about having a career in the comedy business. That's why I'm offering you my Blueprint for Success, 
a one-of-a-kind all-access pass into my knowledge and experience after over 40 years of working with the best of the best in this crazy entertainment industry. I'll tell you all the stories, all the philosophies, give you all the great special guests, and even give you one-on-one -on -one private consultations to help you expand, enhance, and skyrocket your comedy career. Just go to barrycats.com and click on Blueprint for Success to learn more about my groundbreaking digital academy that I've created just for you. With it, we can take your career so far that one day, instead of listening to this podcast, you'll be interviewed on it. So your father, would he have been drinking so severely, do you think, had your sister not been disabled? Or was he, did he have the gene and his parents no, had the gene? No, he was a sociopath. I mean, Trump so reminds me of my father. I did some jokes of, what did I say? Trump was just like my father. He would, he would scream at the neighborhood kids for crying out loud, get off my lawn. He wanted them to build... Uh, a build a wall and pay for it around it. Well, I can't remember the joke. I really massacred. But he was, he's just, you know, there's some people who are just mean and uh, whether they drink or not is irrelevant. But your mom stayed with him. Yeah, she was very dutiful and, um, uh, <laughs> you know, she just, she just stayed with him and then she became sort of a stage mom for me you know and and um and when i was like really about eight years old that i saw a magic show and that changed everything for me because i saw that um i wanted that you wanted to be in front of a crowd no i wanted magical powers oh. i wanted to levitate my sister out of a wheelchair and i i don't think i wanted to saw women in half i wanted to have the power to put them back together i think you know you grow up not just you many people grow up and there's one parent that is cancerous to the family and then there's the other parent who takes the hits and gets up and keeps going and you gravitate towards most of the time to the person who doesn't drink or isn't abusive and that's the person who you hold on to and look for to help you in the future get to where you're going but yet deep in your heart you have no respect for them for staying with the person that's so abusive so it's like this paradox where you don't respect them for staying yeah. but you respect them for believing in you more than you believe in yourself or as much as you believe in yourself <laughs> yes it's the definition of it's complicated right sounds like you're talking from personal knowledge <laughs> well Yes. <laughs> no, no, not no. To, but just on personal Is knowledge. Is that what you found from other people, you mean? Just you... working with artists to comedians, I found that I work with a lot of them who are adult children of alcoholic parents and just a strange thing. And so you grow up wanting to make your sister laugh, 
when your dad was drinking too much, did you, was there a point where you're like, okay, he's got this many drinks in him, I better start making him laugh here and I won't get the shit kicked out of me? No, no, my father had no sense of humor. Um, he was... Um, but he had dirty joke books that you found. Oh, he had dirty joke books. He was salacious. He was a sexual predator. He was not a good He was person. a sexual predator. Yes. I actually found his journal of when he, um, after he died... Um, he kept a journal for part of his life and it's, it's not, it's, he was like kind of, a, like he was a scientist type. So he kept fastidious notes on his conquests and so in other words, bad. you found out after he died that he was cheating on your mom. Yeah, he was, he was a bad man. Let's just put it that way. But you found out after, not during. Oh yeah. We all knew during it it was bad yeah yeah let's get off my father i'm gonna no, have to no, take a no, xanax no because no because this is what shaped you what? and this is what made you who you are today you don't how yeah. many people do you know of in the comedy business that you've talked to you've done seminars you've done classes yeah. uh -huh. how many people are hilariously funny and they grew up with parents that all got along and they had the dog and the white picket no, fence and everything was you know, wonderful. When I, taught, I, I remember I taught comedy. Um, f f the first day was always like, okay, what's effed up about your life? And and we would like, people would go, well, I've been divorced. Woohoo, you know, I can't lose weight. Yeah, it's like, and, and I remember one woman going like, um, I'm, no, I can't think of anything. And it's, come on, someone's rejected you. No. Nope. No, no one's ever rejected me. Um, my teenager loves me. Um, he hugs me every day. It's like, what? I mean, come on. I guess if I have any problem, it's like I can't seem to gain weight. Everything I eat goes right <laughs> to my breasts. I mean, she, it's like, get out of here. You can't be funny. Like, you cannot be funny. Um, I remember one woman stood up in the class that I have cancer and I went whoa I don't know if you can be funny about that but I'll help you and it was remarkable she took she's going through chemo at the time and she stood up at the Hollywood Improv and she talked about having cancer and um what was her joke oh did you all see my car in the parking lot lose weight now ask me how you know <laughs> and so she did jokes about it and she wrote a book about it and um and and the interesting thing about that is that it changed her life and she later said that thank god i had cancer it gave me an act gave i wrote a book humor um healing with humor and so it's those very things in our life that that's that's what i like barry the only people i hang with are the people who like there are people who complain and then there's people who complain but funny so that act of throwing some humor on your the shade in your life means you're a transformational person like you're able to transform those problems into punchlines it it becomes a a survival thing but but you're adding to joy like if you just sit and complain you know do something with it do something with it. That's what I always tell people. Like, whatever your problem is, as soon as you can laugh at a problem 
it becomes smaller. Now, you had something that a very successful comedian had, Dane Cook. You had a speech impediment growing up. Yeah, I had a real, I, I was um, actually, then, now they call it on the spectrum, then they called it retarded, right? So this is a perfect example of what I'm talking about. I mean, and, spe- and the word speech impediment is mean anyway, because I could not, pe- people have a speech impediment, cannot pronounce that word, think about it. Why call something that people have that they cannot pronounce, like stuttering? Oh, are you a stutter? I'm, people who stutter can't say the word stuttering. What was your kind of speech impediment? Um, I had some kind of auditory problem where I could not hear uh, repeat words. So I go, uh, I want those sings. I go, things. I go, sings. I could not hear and repeat words. So I, um, to learn how to speak, I had to be shown where to put my tongue physically. So you had so I, I had a, a learning disability. I guess they'd call it, who the hell knows? But you know, I make my living as a speaker. So go figure. <laughs> when did it correct itself? Um, I think they actually, my parents have to coughed up some money to go to a real specialist rather than <laughs> these, all these years of speech classes uh, in school. Um, and I think it was, what happened was I went, I wanted to be a magician. So I went to the library and I bought books on magic and it came with something called patter. And patter was something that I could memorize and I can get every single word right. So the only time I was um, perfect um, where I could speak was when I was on stage. So kind of like, you'll tell me if I'm right or wrong, the artist, was it Mel Tillis, who was able to, the country and western guy, was able to sing perfectly, but when he talked, he stuttered. Exactly. There, there are a lot of us who are most ourselves, our best selves, when we're actually on stage. You know, when I was recording my book for Audible, The Message of You, um, I stuttered over a word and I couldn't say the word and the guy kept going, you know, the word is incessantly. And I go, when speaking, you shouldn't speak incessantly. I couldn't say it. And I started to cry and it was like horrible. And and the guy told me something extraordinary. While you're recording your book on Audible. (laughs) Audible. Anyway, so they told me something extraordinary. He said, cut. Let me talk to you. What's going on? I go, no, it's just bad. I want to get nervous. I can't speak. And 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 he said, you know, there is a celebrity here, um, and you're supposed to record his book in like three days, and it took him three weeks because he had such a severe speech impediment. And he said that celebrity is James Earl Jones. I went, what? You know, Luke's father had a speech impediment, and he said, yeah. And it was supposed to be, I am your brother, but it came out, I am your father. I mean, I couldn't say. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, he said, and I think that's so amazing because I do believe that we are who we are, not in spite of the difficulties we have, which is what you started talking about adversary, adversary. Now I can't say it, damn it. But it's Do you want me to say it? Ad- adversity. Yes. Right? I got it. Because of adversity, um, I think it's what propels us to what makes us successful. 
So you're doing magic and you start doing magic shows before you're a teenager. Are you making money at these little magic shows? Yeah, look, it- th- look at that. That That's in the L.A. Times when I was 10. And um, we... <laughs> this is a frame, the newspaper article on the wall, full page with about eight pictures there. So you're making <laughs> yeah. money back then. Oh, my God. I was making a fortune. My friend and my neighbor and I, PG, we had a birthday party business and we had cards printed up. What did you get paid per birthday party we at 11 paid, years old or 12? Um, um, $2 and I gave her 75 cents. I got to keep a dollar twenty-five. But in those days, it was a fortune. Kit Kat bars were five cents. Comic books were like 10 cents. Oh my God. I had a, a database of customers. I had a recipe box and each each year I'd call and go like, hi, Mrs. Johnson. We did a party for Kevin last year when he was five years old, you know. Um, how about this year hire us back and and we worked it i was like an entrepreneur i was a born entrepreneur what was your repeat ratio what percentage oh, huge it was like 75 percent, and then we would upgrade oh we've added the accordion how many tricks did you have for each show oh we did we did a like a, a half hour um magic show and um uh, helped with opening the presents and it worked the neighborhood you know i grew up here down the in L.A. down the block from El Coyote's. Of course, and so. El Coyote, one of the most famous Mexican <laughs> restaurants in Los Angeles, on Beverly, right, right. down the street mm-hmm. from the CBS studios in this area, not the ones at Radford and you Studio know, City. I have to tell you, my life is really no different than when I was eight. You know, I was doing marketing then. Did do marketing now? I was performing. I'm performing now. I mean, it's just all so similar so what was your first inspiration to turning magic into stand-up comedy oh that was easy um i was playing a club in chicago it looked as like a, a magician as a magician and my uh, oh it was a playboy club and hefner was coming that night hey everybody let me remind you one more time about my new blueprint for success It's a project I've spent months and months working on just to help you jumpstart your comedy career and beat the competition. Whether you want to do stand-up, sketch, improv, acting, writing, producing, directing, radio, social media influencing, or even if you want a career behind the scenes as a manager or agent, Blueprint for Success will give you all the tools you need to take your career to the highest levels. With exclusive interviews, my top 50 commercial-free episodes from Industry Standard, one-on-one coaching with me, and unprecedented access into my knowledge and experience from over 40 years in this crazy business, I guarantee you that with Blueprint for Success, you'll become the creator you've always dreamed of becoming. No one's asking me to do this. I want to do it because I want to help you become truly undeniable. So just go to barrycats.com, click on Blueprint for Success, and start your incredible journey today. I truly can't wait to work with you to help you change the trajectory of your comedy career forever. Back then, and even today, there are very few female magicians. And I just want to say something that is probably the most incredible entertainment fact 
in all areas of entertainment, there's only one form of entertainment where there has never been a household name female artist, and that's magic. In the history of the last hundred years, never been a household name. Think about that. Think about I will think about because I was at the Magic House last night where I performed when I was 21, and, and, and I was carried out. I was some great Tomasino or whoever the hell, Car- Cardinia the Great, took me over his shoulder because I was playing the close-up gallery, which was the cards, the coins. It was around the men are men, the magicians, real magic. And um, he carried me out and said, women don't belong here. Stick to doves or scarves. Get out, you know. And I went, no, this is where I belong. And I just, like... Oh my God, it was such a fight. And you know what? You look at a magic show, you get a woman sawed in half. Then here's my beautiful assistant. And now I'm going to throw some swords at her and chop her head off. So I did stuff. Oh my God, I put on my Facebook page. It was so funny where I had a male assistant in gold LeMay bikini. It was really funny. And then I would um, saw a man in half and they go, you're hostile. It's like, <laughs> are you kidding me? So there I am, the Chicago club, and my a tricks don't arrive, right? So I'm there, no tricks, and I got to go on, and I say, I can't go on. My tricks aren't here. And he goes, yo, you know, it's some kind of mafia. Yo, lady, I don't care your trick, little tricks don't show up. You're going on. Hef, the man is coming and you're going to go on. And, you know, I'm going like, oh my God, what am I going to do? I don't have my like magic tricks. I don't have all my scarves. What am I going to do? Go to Macy's and buy a hundred scarves all tied together? You know, and so I'm in the bunny locker room crying on this woman's breast. <laughs> I don't know what to do. I've my done that. Aren't here. <laughs> yes. We've all cried on a, in a bunny locker room <laughs> on the the breasts the tits of a um a bunny and and she's like giving me advice you can do it and, and i think and you know i went out there and i just started to talk about all the tricks i was going to do and didn't and then i think i wrote my first joke on the spot and said hey a lot of these bunnies are feminists you know hey don't call us bunnies we're rabbits and, and and everybody laughed and and Hef loved me and then he invited me to the Chicago mansion. I slept in the leather room, although I think it was really vinyl. So you improvised an entire stand-up act. <laughs> yeah. How long? I had to stay up there like forty minutes. Or forty something. minutes of doing stuff <laughs> off the top of your head. Did you do any little magic stuff? Yeah, with I the think day? I ran about a deck of cards and just, but, but but mostly it was just comedy. How and many people were in the room? It was it was filled. Um, you know, it was the Chicago, it was you know Hefner. Do you think Hef wanted to sleep with club. you in the black pleather room? No, he did not want to sleep with me. And it was the Chicago mansion. There was like only the three of us. I was just kind of wandering around, looking at the bowling alley. But you know, um, he was one of the biggest employers of jazz musicians and comics at the time. So anyway, and. My tricks didn't show up. Thanks to United Airlines, I became a comic with Carry On. I was traveling with, I was doing escape from like hefty bags with trash. I was, I was schlepping 
But a twist Huge. of fate where something didn't arrive got you into comedy. So you find out that you get laughs. Yeah. And But you're getting booked as a magician. So here's well, a, I was always funny. But, but here's know. a transition here. You're being hired as a magician in places. You're making a living. I presume you're paying the rent. Were you living at the time here in L.A.? Yeah. I so you're doing these Monica. gigs, these magic gigs, these private gigs, corporate gigs, whatever it was, college gigs, as a magician, where you do comedy in between. We all know there are well, magicians who do comedy funny. in between things. Yeah. But now you did a whole thing that was funny except for a few tricks so how long before the transition to just stand up and no magic how, how long did that take well it just started like that it just it it just i was first of all i was always funny but i was scared to to show the audience me you know, it was always, look at this thing in front of me. Look at this newspaper in front of me that I'm tearing up. Look at this. Look over here. So I never really, I was really so nervous just to be naked on stage. It felt so naked just to, you know, and that's been my journey towards authenticity, getting more and more honest. And so that just, you know, and then I rode the gravy train days of, you know, all the comedy clubs were opening. I was on the road maybe 46 weeks out of the year. And you were headlining the shows. Yeah, I was headlining. Now, even though technically you hadn't done stand up on television at the time that you were going on the road. Well, I always combined the two. So it was always magic and comedy. So it was really always No, but eight. think about it. How many people were headlining in the clubs that hadn't been on television doing stand-up? But I had been. I did four HBO com. I did like Showtime comedy special. So you started headlining after you did the stand-up on television. Yeah, but I, I had been always doing comedy, but it was always with a lot of props. So when you did this show at the Chicago Hefner place or wherever it was, mm -hmm. you were approximately how old? Jeez, I guess I was like, uh, let's see, that was like, I was like 25. Okay. And so during the next few years, you're making the transition, doing stand-up more and more, I presume, in the comedy clubs in uh -huh. Los Angeles. So you're doing the comedy store. You're doing the improv. No, well, actually, you're I, doing was, I was the you're first doing... person. I opened up Mitzi's room. Um, I was the first person in the main room. Mitzi Shore, Mitzi the comedy store. You were the first the comic on stage. She opened up the main room. I was working at the comedy store. Um... Um, before she even have a liquor license. So you were the first, one of the first comedians to go on at the comedy store. Oh, yeah. Uh, certainly uh, uh, women. There weren't any. Elaine Boozler was doing it in New York. I was out here in L.A. Bud just came out here and started the improv. Those were really great days. Andy Kaufman was out here. Albert Brooks would come by, get on stage at 1 a.m., not get off till 3 a.m., doing, like, brilliant stuff. I mean, it was really, really cool. And then Mike Douglas had me on 22 times as a regular. So you're doing stand-up in the clubs in the 70s. Yeah. In the late in 70s. 80s, yeah. In the early 80s. But the late 70s when there weren't a lot of comedians working. There were probably maybe 
50 in Los Angeles that were doing a set that you could actually watch yeah. at the time, right? Yeah. From 77 to 79, that area. And then after 80, there was a boom and there were a lot of people. I'm just talking about in LA. Yeah. Would you agree with that? There are about oh, yeah. 50 that you could actually say, okay, I could sit through this. Yes. Okay. And out of those 50 in Los Angeles, there was you doing comedy. There was uh, two other women doing comedy. Lotus Weinstock, Emily Levine, and Sandra Bernhardt. That's right. And but Mitzi Sandra would... was in New York, wasn't she? No, she was out here. Okay, so those three. She was a Lois... manicurist in Beverly Hills. Got it. So Sandra Bernhardt, Lois Weinstock, Judy Carter, and there's one other one? Um, no, uh, Mitzi booked us and then it was, uh, Lois Bromfeld started. Then a lot more women started. But I'm talking about in the seventies. Yeah. Okay. That's who it was. Got it. Okay. And so you're doing your thing. And then it was Lily, but Lily came in through like Lily she was a generation before us. Got it. So you're doing the stand up around LA. Tell our audience your first television break. Well, what, I wasn't really doing L.A. Irvin Arthur, you know him? Of course. Irvin Arthur was a tremendous personal appearance agent. He had an office on Wilshire in an old style office. And he was just a guy who had, at that time, had the yeah. pulse on stand-up comedy. But he was like a... He was Joan Rivers' first agent. Yeah, he was an old-time guy. Even when he was younger, he appeared like he was older. Yeah, I never can picture him. I decided that I had the perfect act for Playboy Clubs. So I called up his office and I said, um, I'm, a, I'm a comedy magician. I like Mr. Arthur to come, you know, to see him. It's, sorry, you don't have an agent. Mr. Arthur will not see you. So I went, oh, what the hell? I went there with my act and I sat in his waiting room and his wife, Sandy, was there. And I, I said, um, he said, Mr. Arthur will not see you. I said, well, maybe it's a moment. I'll just wait. So I waited there for one hour, two hours, three hours, four hours. He'd come out every now and then look at me. And I was cute. You know, I'm really young. What am I, 21, 22? So he says, oh, come on in. So I go in and I do my act just for him right there. Right, he says, this is sensational. You gotta remember, I invented all my tricks. I wrote everything. I was doing multimedia with me on a TV and talking to it. I was doing crazy shit. And he said, this is great. I'll tell you what, I'll book you tonight. I'll give you $50. You come to the Century City. And if you do good, I'll sign you. What Where was happened? he booking you? What in Century City? He booked City? me as a Playboy Club at Century City. Oh, that's right. The old Playboy Club between the towers. Okay, yeah. And then from that, I went out and I was doing like all these shows. So I was not one of the comics in L.A. working the com It's a totally different one I did. Yeah, and you made money that way and they didn't. And so when you did work the clubs, they noticed you had money and they're like, where did you get your money? Well, I'm working the road with. I was always on the road. So, but who's the first talent booker on a television series that Irvin had come to see you who booked you? Oh, where I did a TV? Yes. Hmm. Well, I guess the ver Chuck Braverman uh, was one of the uh, comedy producers at that time. On what show? Um, it was Paramount Comedy Theater, where they just started doing comedy specials. Mm -hmm. Then it was a Showtime special. So your and Paramount then, Comedy special was how long? Oh, uh, my set there? Yeah. It was about 20 minutes. 20 minutes, got it. Yeah, and, and then I started doing like a lot of like the big charity events with Billy Crystal and Robin and... 
share like the share thing and um i just was working con- i i was working constantly like i said 46 weeks out of the year and um were you we, in any relationships then um no that's why um i finally quit so you couldn't keep a relationship with no. that kind of schedule no did was, you want a relationship oh yeah Oh, yeah. And then I was um, I, I was Prince's some... opening act also. Then I traveled a little with Prince. And um, How do you on. engage an audience that's there to see Prince? Oh, my God. I got to tell you that story. Oh, you're going to die when you hear this story. Okay. They booked me to open for him at the Roxy. and, and The Roxy here in Los Angeles on Sunset. Right. And he's like not Prince yet. Like he's like the wonder kind from he's the Michigan. artist previously known Notice. as prince what yeah so he doesn't have like white people who um will come to see him so they said judy do not open for him they'll they'll eat you alive they'll they'll, they'll hate you and he, they said it this way he says his audiences come down from coke by eating jews don't <laughs> do it that was ed bluestone all comic anyway don't do it and i go oh, but i want to i could do it i can get him i can get him and then i thought how am i going to do this okay i had this idea so you know when they go to see a, a concert like that they line up outside for like an hour so i got an accordion and i played one song outside with glasses um pretending i was blind and i played the same song over and over for this like really hip looking crowd right really cool people and i played lady of spain i adore you over and over and some people are throwing me a dollar a quarter whatever and then the line starts and they go oh god thank god i was going to kill myself if i have to listen to that anymore you know and they're going in and then they go and they're all there and they're all hyped up to see prince and go see prince whoa and opening the show judy carter and i came out with the accordion and the entire audience went oh shit and i had them in the palm of my hand oh my god they loved me because i i played a joke on them before the show even started right Oh my God, they loved me. And after that, the Roxy had me open for every single black act that ever came through there. Did you, you do know? the same trick in the lawn? Um, God, did I? I might have. I'm not sure if I did, but it was just, it just was, it just worked. They just, it, it ended up that was my audience. As you know, I was fortunate enough to do a documentary surrounding the only living person to ever admit to killing JFK from the grassy knoll. This is a guy who spent 50 years in prison, just got out. We have exclusive footage of his interview and over 20 different interviews, along with interviews with five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. Once you watch these videos, your perception of the world and what happened that day will change forever. It's incredible. Just go to ikilljfk.com. You can pick up the documentary I Killed JFK and the rare interviews of five of the greatest JFK assassination experts in the world. I guarantee you, once you watch this footage, you will be blown away.
to quote one of the experts in the film when Trump said he wanted to drain the swamp. What do you think's at the bottom of the swamp? IKillJFK.com. Check it out. And that wraps up part one of two episodes. You can check out the next episode this coming Thursday. And here's a preview of the next episode. To me, Dick Gregory, Richard Pryor changed stand-up. Um, because they start because stand-up was like white guys going, take my wife, please. Richard Pryor did act outs, what I call act outs in my book, where he jumped, he, he, he did a quick setup and he jumped into the scene. Like if he's doing the scene of, a, of comparing a white funeral where people are, oh, he died, to a black funeral where they're throwing themselves on the grave going, I'm going with you. And he was so completely into the character and the act out and the scene, it was like you are there. And that became the new way of doing comedy. As always, this has been Industry Standard with me, Barry Katz. And if you like the show, tell all your friends. And if you don't like the show, tell all your friends. You get out the money. Drop that fancy car. All the people love you. You're going far. Life is for the dreamers They have all to gain It's never quite over Till it all feels the same You pick your own poison Dig your own grave Down in the valley Fortune Thank you for listening to Industry Standard with Barry Katz. If you'd like more info on our schedule of new episodes or how to reach Barry through Twitter, Facebook, or email, go to barrykatz.com. Before you leave... Please take a moment to subscribe to our podcast, leave a comment, and rate it, even if you think it blows. Thank you for your support, and have a great day.